So let me give you a little list of styles, and then if you've got some others, you uh, throw them in. Of course, there's the classicist style, the classic style, uh, the Baroque style, the Romantic period, there's the realist style, there's the impressionist style, the cubist style, did anybody get cubism? Um, a surrealist style, not the realist style, the surrealist style. There's the deconstructionist style, um, a little bit like the cubist style, but deconstructionism in art and the futurist style. Did anybody get any others? Sorry? Right, fatalism. <laughs> I can't hear all that. Right, I didn't even know what that is. Does that? <laughs> That's really, you see, lots of different styles of art. And the extraordinary thing is, the extraordinary thing is that if you, um, if you choose to paint, say, the picture we've just been looking at, the Eiffel Tower, and you paint it in an impressionist style or a realist style, or a futurist style, or a cubist style, what you'll actually do is paint something really quite different. But if you line up all of those styles, an impressionist style, a surrealist style, a deconstructionist style, a cubist style, actually you'll be able to tell, hmm, these, these really kind of stretch me, but they're different ideas about exactly the same thing. When we introduced this series about the cross two weeks ago, uh, when I spoke um, uh, uh, on the cross with um, Jerry, and we spoke about the power of the cross uh, then, what happened was I explained, well, in fact, I, do you remember, I got everybody to take a picture of the bands from their, yeah? I got everybody to take a picture of the band from their point of view from this side of the room and that side of the room, and then swap seats and share your pictures. And the pictures were all different. Some were zoomed out, some were zoomed in, some, ones, uh, some focused just on the four members stood up here, some caught the background, some were from this angle and some were that, from that angle. All looked different. They were taken at different moments but they were all undeniably of exactly the same group of people in the same place doing the same thing. And so what we said then was, depending on how you look at this cross that sits at the center of our faith, you'll come up with different express expressions, different ways of talking about, different ways of seeing the same thing. The Bible, the New Testament, incredibly never demands one view, one way of looking at what Jesus did and achieved when he died on the cross for us. Instead, the New Testament's filled with different views, different styles. I'm not much of a photographer, but I have got a camera that I use occasionally, and I've got two different lenses. And even I have learned that depending on the lens I fit, I can be pointing it at the, exactly the same subject and I get a completely different shot, like in focus or out of focus in my case. But you know, if you've got a wide angle lens or a narrow angle lens, you'll see different things. 
And my camera's a smart one. I'm not a smart operator, but you can set the focal length and the aperture. I just put it on automatic the whole time, but it's got loads of little buttons on. And I know that if you put the right filters in front of the lens and you set the aperture and the focus right, you can get quite different shots with different amounts of light of the same thing. But you'll still recognize it as the same thing. The angle can be different, the lens can be different, and in the example or the metaphor I just used, the style can be different, impressionist or futurist. But you still see, through all these lenses and styles, exactly the same thing. The cross of Jesus is like that. It is the centerpiece, as you know, of Christian faith. It's been ridiculed and it's been abused, but it stands there, thrust into the ground, to tell us many things about who God is and who we are. And over these um, last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at this together. So, two weeks ago, uh, Jerry and I talked about the power of the cross, and last week, uh, Nathan talked about the example of the cross, looking at a different passage in the New Testament and a different painting uh, that's been painted by a different writer thinking in a different way and reflecting on this great event. This morning I'm going to talk about uh, I'm going to talk about representation and the cross and next week Jill is going to talk about solidarity and the cross. There's this amazing passage we just read in the book of Romans and I'm not going to repeat everything that Emma uh, said uh, but let me just read you uh, this last verse. Uh, that we read. For if by the trespass of one man, one man Adam, the story of Adam, the parable of Adam in the Old Testament in Genesis, for if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? Paul here who thinks differently about the cross in different letters on different occasions and paints different pictures or different metaphors, is perhaps thinking more mystically than he ever thinks at any other point in his writing. There's a big question uh, around for us, isn't there? Um, turn or burn? I can't re uh, remember the last... Oh, no, I can remember the last time I saw that uh, sign... I was in America a little bit earlier in the year, in May, with Dave. And, um, and Dave and I were wandering along in Chicago. Do you remember that Saturday? And there were a bunch of Christians standing, hurling abuse at everybody who passed by, assuming that everybody who passed by was headed for hell. And the message clearly displayed on um, the back of their T-shirts, some of their T-shirts, the front of some of their T-shirts, and in their literature was turn or burn. I mean, it was a very badly organized affair, wasn't it? And I, David, tell you, I stopped to get them more organized because I figured, you know, <laughs> I, I figured that even if they wanted to say that to people, which I didn't let, they, they were so badly organized, they weren't going to get their message across to anyone. So I tried to explain to them how to get a little group together and kind of, you know, get it out there if you really want to say it. It struck me that they... Uh, you know, they were really shooting themselves in their own foot, and perhaps you might suggest that I should have left them to do that. But, you know, I kind of, you know, you've got to learn a bit about communication in life as you go through, haven't you? So, 
there you go, the big kind of turn or burn message. There is a staggering number of people, aren't there, who've been taught by Christians that it's only the select few of Christians who will ever end up in a peaceful, joyous, harmonious heaven. Whilst the rest of humanity, because of virtue of the fact that they were born in the wrong place at the wrong time, that they didn't become Christians or didn't have the opportunity to become Christians, are going to be tormented forever, punished in hell with no chance of anything better. You know that said a huge amount of the time. In my view, this is, in my view, this is an utterly misguided, utterly toxic view of the Bible. I think it subverts everything that Jesus was about, and I think it's a real problem to spreading the contagious message of God's love and compassion and grace and forgiveness for us. But the point is this, we're going to talk about that a bit as I talk about what Paul's saying about the cross here. The point is this, in church, in society, we should be able to ask questions and debate. The desire for us to question big things about our faith, like the meaning of the cross and its outcome in terms of forgiveness and judgment, as I've just been talking about, the desire for us to question and the opportunity for us to question, I think, is divine in and of itself. It's easy to build a church, or for that matter, any organization, take a really toxic version of this at the moment, IS, by simply telling people what they have to do and what they have to believe. I put it to you that that's how extremism flourishes, but I put it to you that some of the biggest churches in the world do exactly the same thing. You can build a church as long as you tell people how to think all the time. In the end, they drop out, of course, but for the years before they face the big questions, they stick with it. they be the regiment, they be the troops who believe it because they were told to believe it and say it because they were told to say it. I, however, don't feel that that has any real place in any understanding that arises out of this library, this Bible. I think that what Jesus does all of his life the life, the teaching life that we learn about here, is he asks people to think. I mean, Jesus constantly, doesn't he? He tells a story. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still wondering, you know, what does it mean? You know, does it mean this? There's, there, oh, I've, just, I've been reading the story of the Good Samaritan all these years, or the prodigal son, and I just saw this new truth in it. Jesus could leave people with a story and a question and get them to think. So many people in life want to shut down the stories, shut down the questions, and tell people what they have to think and have to do. It strikes me, however, that any healthy church is a church where the conversation and the debate and the dialogue is alive and well and thriving. There is no question that you shouldn't be able to ask at the cross. There is no question 
that robust Christian faith shouldn't be able to deal with and handle. There is no discussion that's too volatile, too dangerous <laughs> to have. Our churches must be places where we can ask questions about life. And it strikes me as we look at the cross that the real beauty and strength and depth and richness of the church historically, the historic Orthodox Church, is that the Christian faith has always found room for that discussion. Has always found room for that discussion. In actual fact, the church is diverse, as you know. Orthodox and Catholic and Protestant and Pentecostal and charismatic and very uncharismatic. All together. <coughs> it's deep. It's wide. It's diverse. And it's been this conversation for 2,000 years and we're part of it. And that's a brilliant thing. Let's not shut down the conversation. Let's have the conversation. And the New Testament debates uh, lots of things and none more so than the meaning of the cross. They somehow understood that Jesus' death on the cross was the central piece of Christianity along with his resurrection. And so they write about it. And here in these verses that Emma read to us, Paul's kind of painting a different picture in a different style. And what he says is this. He says that in Adam, everyone died. Everyone died. Therefore, he says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in the same way, through Jesus, all will live. I guess lots of you know this passage. It kind of clashes with other things Paul wrote in other places. And actually, those of you who um, do theology will know that there's been much, much <coughs> written about all of this. Yesterday, Hub Athletic, our great football team, lost. Now, it's terrible, isn't it? It is terrible because, as I wrote on the back of the news sheet, is Sam here? Is Sam, oh, he's, he's gone out. Is Sam still back here? No, he's, he's, um, you see, he's gone out to hang his head in shame somewhere. <laughs> we lost. We lost 3-2. We lost 3-2, having missed two <laughs> penalties. We got two penalties and missed them both. But it was still too old until the 88th minute. For those of you who are not very good at football, that's the end, basically. <laughs> I, it was the dying ambers of the match, the dying couple of minutes, and the other side scored. And so we lost. We lost. But we are a great team. We're at the top of the league. We will win a game. I support Palace. This week, I was, um, I was at an event speaking. And I don't know if you know, but last Sunday, it must have been the power of prayer in this church, but last Sunday, our team, I say our team, I, yeah, I don't want to pin it on you, my team, Palace, we defeated Liverpool. We slaughtered them. Two, you're not enthusiastic. We, we beat them 2-1, which was fantastic. And I met a Liverpool supporter this week. 
you know, there's one or two Liverpool supporters here, I can see. I met a Liverpool supporter this week, and he said, we lost to you. And I said, you know, that's the problem for the minor clubs. When you come up against titan teams in the premiership, you're always going to struggle. I'm a Palace supporter. So I say, we won. When we lose, I say, we lost. England lost to Spain the other day, you know, keeping this on football. So we lost 2-0 to Spain. It was only a friendly, but does it mean that we won't be any good when we get to the European Championships? Switching to rugby, Stuart Lancaster lost his job this week because we lost. We got knocked out of the Rugby World Cup at the qualifying stages and we never made it through into the quarterfinals. I can tell you're not a very kind of rugby type. Again, I'm kind of, you're going, oh, so what? <laughs> oh, yeah, there you are. This, <coughs> this is uh, Mr. New Zealand down here. So he's feeling quite differently. He says, what would you say, Tim? We won! We won! <laughs> but here's the point. Tim had nothing to do with it. He says, we won. What, what part did you play in this victory? <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm coughing because, thank you, Jojo. I'm coughing because I always get asthma in November, which is one of those things. So it's because uh, of the heating going on. So what part did Tim play in uh, New Zealand's The All Blacks victory? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Indeed. His non-involvement was probably part of their winning. <laughs> Had he been involved, I think things probably wouldn't have gone quite so well. If he'd been taking those drop kicks, if he'd been coaching the team. But he can still say we. And he says we for a good reason. Because he's a New Zealander. And we all understand solidarity. We all understand representation. When those men took to that pitch, they represented the whole of New Zealand. When Palace put out 11 great players, we, they stood for us together. We all understand the idea of representation. So when I can say we won or we lost, the truth is for the last three or four seasons, I haven't actually been to see Palace play at all. I just watch the highlights on the telly and I say, we won. We're eight. We are eight in the premiership. I've made my point, haven't I? You're probably hoping that I'd give up and wander on to something else. Talk about the tragedy and the brutality of what's happened in Paris in these uh, last 48, 36 hours. The truth is, we talk again about them and us. And our European leaders talk about them and us. They say, we are at war with them. They are barbaric. We must win. We reduce everything down in the end into these same terms, don't we? We talk about them and we talk about us all of the time. What Paul is saying here in Romans is, in Adam, the story of humanity, because, the, uh, because 
Genesis chapter 2, the story that is in Genesis chapter 2, is a parable about the first man and the first woman. Adam simply means first man, and Eve simply uh, means, uh, woman simply means uh, a man's helper, the first, the first woman. It's a parable about the beginning of humanity. As, as um, a little aside, by the way, the, the story in Genesis chapter 1, which is a poem, as you know, which talks about the uh, six days of creation, um, and it's, it, it's not just a poem, it is a poem. Somebody uh, asked somebody uh, well-known some time ago, I remember this story, uh, so they said, so you're saying Genesis 1 is just a poem, it's, it's not true. And he said, no, it's a poem, so it's much truer than you think. It's not some scientific textbook. It's something, it's a poem that's telling us a great truth about ourselves and humanity and being made in God's image. Well, Genesis chapter 2 is a different story, as I think we've said. It's not a poem, it's a parable. But if you consider them both to be historic historical narratives, they disagree with one another. Sometimes people say there are no contradictions in the Bible. They've obviously not read Genesis chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. There's a huge contradiction between Genesis 1 and chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, we are told that God, on the third day, you can check it out, he makes the vegetation and the, tr the trees. And then on the sixth day, uh, he adds humanity, and on the seventh day he rests. In Genesis chapter 2, which you go straight into, it says that when God made men and women, there was no vegetation. He made men and women first, and then later he added the vegetation. If they're historic, scientific accounts, they clash with one another. But they're not. Genesis chapter 1 tells us one thing. Genesis chapter 2 is about something else. And actually, um, theologians believe that Genesis chapter 2, because you know these stories, like all others, get edited together in the end, probably by the guy called Ezra, who's got his own book in the Old Testament. Lots of different... Um, I've not had drunk any of this water, have I? I'm just holding it. Yeah. Lots of different stories and strands, oral stories that have been held together for centuries, are brought together and written and made into Genesis. And the Genesis chapter 2 account, the story of Adam and Eve working together, many uh, theologians believe comes from a different time where people began to work together to farm the land for the first time. Instead of being hunter-gatherers, they were beginning to form communities and learn to live together. And this story relates to that period because it's all about not scapegoating the other. It's all about not saying, it's your fault, not my fault. It's all about learning the lesson that what God wants for us is that we take responsibility together. The story's all about becoming community and the man says to the woman, it's your fault and scapegoats them. I'm not to blame, it's them, it's her. You hear that played out on the international stage day after day after day. It's not us, it's them. They did it, not us. We see with clarity, they've got it wrong. It's called scapegoating and it's been alive and well uh, since Adam and Eve. But Paul says this, as in that story of Adam, the story of Adam and Eve, we all, that's what we're all about. 
It's all, it's all gone wrong. It's all broken. We all scapegoat. We all, we all sit under judgment because of that, because of the way we live. So in Christ, through his example and who he is, we, who he is, we all live. In Adam and in our humanity, we're all judged. We're all judged as self-centered. We're all judged as self-seeking. We're all judged as buck-passing because that's what we do. But through Jesus, we all live. We all find life. We all find hope. There is a, a new way. Um, Rob Bell has written a great book about this, in my view. Um, it's called Love Wins. Um, there's nothing, by the way, for those of you who are older, that Rob says in his book, Love Wins, that somebody called John Stott didn't say about 30 years earlier. John Stott was a famous uh, evangelical leader. But Rob tells this uh, 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 story. He says that he went to an art show, and uh, in the art show there was, a, there was a kind of modernist piece of art, which was a picture of, of uh, Gandhi. And... Uh, it had a quote from Gandhi, and he, it, it exhorted Gandhi. Thank, oh, thank you. <laughs> Look at this. Can I have a chair? No, no, can't I like that? No. It had a quote from Gandhi. But somebody had actually uh, don't, uh, 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 terrorized the art piece, if you see what I mean. They, they, uh, they scribbled some graffiti across it, and uh, they simply said this. Really, because it was a piece of uh, wisdom from Gandhi, underneath they'd written, really, Gandhi's in hell anyway. And that, of course, is because he wasn't a, a, a born-again Christian. That view that the majority of humanity is headed to hell directly. Whilst only a few of us who happen to go to churches like ours, who happen to be born in Bournemouth and not Baghdad. Have you ever thought about that? You know, the postcode lottery that God plays. You know, you're a good kind of person. You get got born in Bournemouth. What are you going to do? You're likely to, you know, join your Anglican church. Whereas if you're born in Baghdad, you're likely to become a good Muslim. Is God playing some kind of postcode lottery? <coughs> some people live where there's a church that they can respond to and make sense of, but other people are in a place where they never get a chance to hear. What's God doing? Gandhi was no doubt a giant of a person. So this person graffitis his art and says, but he wasn't a Christian, he's going to die and burn in hell anyway. What does the Bible say about this? One day, about um, 10 years ago, um, perhaps a bit longer than that, I sat with John Stott who used to be the rector of a church called All, All Souls, where the BBC is, and uh, was a great, great man. He was elderly. I used to go sit in a coffee shop with him, well, tea shop, his favourite tea shop, and uh, uh, I, I used to get to, um, you know, I'd buy him a cup of tea, and I used to spend a couple of hours just talking with him. And I remember talking with John Stott, who in the 1980s was nearly thrown out of evangelicalism because he suggested that not everyone was going to end... He suggested that the majority of the human race would not end up burning in hell. And John said this to me again, 
I can't do justice to the depth of his thought and you need to read it and you can read much of it in Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. But uh, what John uh, said was simply this. He said, I know that Jesus talks about judgment. I am a follower of Jesus. But, he said, I'm, I point myself to the fact that when Jesus, tended to, when Jesus judged people, it tended to be, it was the religious leaders. Jesus encountered people who were not of Jewish faith or any faith. He encountered uh, the Roman centurions who worshipped pagan gods. But Jesus says to him, I've not seen faith like yours in the whole of Israel. He doesn't condemn him. Yet at the same time, Jesus points out to the religious leaders that if they don't live up to all the things they speak of, they are in danger of God's judgment. Jesus talks about what we've turned into the word hell. For him, it was another metaphor. It was a rubbish dump on the southwest side of Jerusalem. It was called Gehenna. We translated it as hell. And it was another metaphor, but he kept saying, if you live this way, you're in danger of ending up in Gehenna. It's like, if you live this way whilst you're here in this life, you're like living on Gehenna. The values that you've surrendered, the way that you're living is like living in crap. And he seemed to say that beyond this life, there was, always, there was also the threat of permanent exclusion by God for those who rejected God's love. But I remember John saying to me, but I'm not one of those who has misread the New Testament as meaning that all those who are not born-again Christians, that all those who don't attend Anglican churches, that all those who are born into other faiths and other religions, that all of those who are Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists, because they're not Baptists, are some, somehow excluded from God's love. John pointed me again to this passage in Romans. As in Adam, we all are messed up because we share that humanity, that scapegoating, self-serving, self-centered nature. So through what Jesus has done on the cross, somehow we are all offered hope. I remember John saying to me, he said, I cannot say that there will not be those who are excluded from God's love forever in the future but he said i'm one of those if god isn't a universalist he said this to me if god's not a universalist and doesn't include us all in the end he said i'm one of those who wishes he was i wish he was but i do not subscribe he said to the view that god is going to send the vast majority of humans into hell because they were born at the wrong place and not without a church or they weren't given the opportunity to respond i believe he said that god judges us on the light that we have and the way we've lived but he declares through jesus that he comes in forgiveness and hope to us all i am um, got a taxi on friday i went down to speak at something on friday in croydon and i had to get away and i get and get in this taxi and it's this old Muslim guy driving the taxi. And the place, I, I had to go on a taxi journey, which was about 25 minutes long. So he's driving his taxi. We get talking. So, you know, you talk to people in taxis, don't you? So I say, I say, ah, you know, what's your name? He says, it's Mohammed. 
I, I guess I could tell that from his dress, actually. And uh, so I said, oh, Mohammed, have you lived in Croydon? Uh, do you live in Croydon? Because that's where we were. He said, yeah, I lived here for 20 years. I said, cool, I lived here a long time. I was born here. He said, you weren't, were you? I said, yes, I was. I said, um, have you got family? He said, yeah, I've got two boys. I said, how old are your boys? He said, well, they're, at, um, he said, they're, they're, they're both at King's College. He said, that's why I drive a taxi. It's my duty. He said, I don't want them to end up in debt. I work seven days a week to get them through their education, but the last one leaves next year, and then I retire, he said. <laughs> said, but I have, I've done my duty to my boys. I said, boys, I said, you sound like a great dad. He said, well, I live to serve my wife and, and my, my children, and these are my boys, and I, I know they will do it for their own uh, sons. I said, that's fantastic. I said, you know, family values are slipping out of our, our culture, aren't they now? He said, yeah, absolutely. He said, uh, 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 he said, you know, like Sunday, he said. You know, he said, like all these people in this culture, they want to go and buy things on Sunday. I think, he said, I agree with the church. He said, I'm not a Christian. I agree with the church. We should keep Sunday different. And he, and he said, and whilst I'm on it, he said, I've just heard, I don't know if this is true, that Sainsbury's want to open on Christmas Day. He said, I think that's terrible. He said, I think we should celebrate the birth of Christ and we should be in our homes. And then he said, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Muslim. What are you? I said, well, actually, I'm a Christian. He said, are you a real man of faith? Or just somebody who says these things. I said, well, I don't know. It's for you to judge. But I said, I try to live my life following Christ. He said, because he picked me up from an Oasis school. He said, that's a good school. What were you doing there? I said, oh, I work for Oasis. We got talking about this. He said, how long have you worked for Oasis? In the end, I had to tell him. <laughs> I, I, said, I said, I founded Oasis. He said, that's amazing. He said, everyone in Croydon knows these schools are of great Christian values. And then he said, the funny thing is, the people say, because we run quite a lot of schools in Croydon, the people say, you don't put crosses on your building and you don't force people into faith, but you have more Christian faith than many of the buildings that do put crosses on their buildings and do force people into faith. So we reached East Croydon Station and I got out and he said, this is free from me. I mean, it was a 25 minute. He said, this is free from me. It's what I want to give back to you and to the church. Thank you. So here's the thing. Are you telling me that God is going to take that man and he's going to torture him forever in hell and he's going to make him burn and he's going to fry him over a pit forever and a day because he's not a member of a Baptist church or an Anglican? Are you telling me that? Because if you're telling me that, that poses huge questions about who God is. Big questions about who God is. Deeper questions about God is than my head can get itself round. The truth is, I met a gentleman. I met someone who cared about our country. I met someone who was generous. I met a great father. I met someone of faith. I met someone of spirituality. And if God is going to fry him because he's of the wrong denomination or wrong religion, somehow something's wrong. 
I've taught for long enough, and I'm going to, so I'm going to stop. And I'm going to stop by pointing you back to Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to ask you this question. Remember, no question about the cross is too big to talk about. No question's too volatile to talk about. Here's the question. When it says, in Adam we all die, and from that we've taken it to mean everyone is contaminated by sin, original sin, what does it therefore mean in the same little phrase when it says, so in Christ we all live? What does that mean? I put it to you that God is a God of grace. I know that Jesus warns us all to keep our lives on track. I am not someone who's ready to say there are none who through their own volition will step away from God's grace in the end and be lost because they choose that. But I do not believe from this passage or from this picture of the cross that we serve a God who relentlessly punishes people without opportunity. I believe that God is a God of grace, the God of grace, and that he is the great righteous judge, and he will do right by the people of the earth. I hope this makes sense. Back to sleep. God bless you.